Welcome back to Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers, the podcast devoted to exploring the frontiers of psychedelic medicine and what it takes to cultivate a healthy mind, body, and spirit. I'm Dr. Steve Thayer, and today my co-host, Dr. Reed Robinson, and I discuss making life sacred through ceremony and ritual. Post-enlightenment and certainly post-industrial life in the West has become increasingly more profane. Reed and I explore in this episode the potential problems with this and the value of adding ritual, ceremony, and sacredness back into your life, if it isn't already there. Thank you to all of you who have left reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. This really helps elevate the profile of the podcast and helps us get to more people who might find our content useful and perhaps entertaining. Thank you for your emails, your YouTube comments. If you want to email us, you can email us at psychfrontiers at novamind.ca. If you have a question or you want to give us some, some feedback. Uh, if you want to interact with Reed or myself on social media, you can find Reed at Interspace Doctor on Instagram and myself at Dr. Steve Thayer. All right, let's get sacred. Oh. Um. Whoa. <laughs> Reed and I are trying to start the podcast episode with a ritual. The om growl. Yeah. The uh, <laughs> I've never seen that before. Try it again. Uh, you got to get right the, the epiglottis. You got to get to vibrate appro appropriately. Using my throat as an instrument. <sighs> That's tough. Can that you do that? There we go. Are you rolling your R's like... Not with your tongue, it's with the back Spanish. of your throat. So it's oh, like, like, it's like the French R. Or the, uh, I forget what they call it in German, the Yeah. Hmm. So uh, this is a silly ritual, but um, today we wanted to talk about making life sacred through the practice of rites and rituals. I feel like it's a good follow-up to our last episode on intentions. Living, uh, if folks, if you haven't listened to that episode, I'm proud of it. I think it was a good episode. I think we explored some important topics for, you know, making life a good life and a meaningful one. And it is very much related to today's topic, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, rituals and sacredness. Oftentimes when we, we use the word sacred, it calls to mind the idea of, um, religion, Right. The idea that within a religious context or dogma or belief system, there are certain doctrines or um, places, right? Like a temple or a church or rituals and rites and prayers and scriptures and books and people who are sacred. So what is sacred, right? Sacred, at least in my mind, is something that is set apart, set apart for yeah. a specific purpose that's non-ordinary, right? It's not typical. It's not profane. It's not banal. It's something that is uh, different and specific that we treat with reverence, right? So, uh, the sacredness invites an idea of veneration, respect, and reverence. To set something apart in a special way. And it doesn't have to be for a religious purpose, like like you said. It could just be, um, and I think if we cut through all that, the mm -hmm. re religion and spirituality even, um, we engage in ceremonies and rituals to help 
um, with this uncomfortable uncertainty that life is full of to help punctuate the chaos with things that are more familiar and soothing to our souls or our nervous systems that we repeat to kind of come back to a grounded presence to uh, um, it's we can use these triggering words like we sacramentalize the discomfort or we punctuate life with these ceremonies um, in order to return to the here and now and return to ourselves and perhaps to connect with the great mystery yeah man you said a lot in those short sentences whoops <laughs> no not whoops at all it was it was uh filled with a lot of meaning people should like rewind and just listen to what you said a few times let's remi- let's remix it <clears throat> with ohms and uh, growls so, yeah ceremony gets us back to the simple life mm-hmm. like civilizations have always engaged in these things like salute the sun um you know pray before you eat uh hold hands give thanks kumbaya circle um brush your teeth in the morning <laughs> Yeah, there's these certain aspects of rituals that uh, are, are common. Like even if you have them inside or outside of religious context, shaking someone's hand is a ritual. Yeah. There's nothing inherent about the my hand grasping your hand that would suggest kinship or familiarity or intimacy. It's just something we've decided means, hello, nice to nice meet you. Nice to meet you. Just like namaste, the, the light in me sees and honors the light in you. Mm. Yeah, or a bow, you know, when you see somebody or it's the, one of my favorite comedians, Brian Regan, talks about the uh, the the quick lift of the eyebrows when somebody greets you waiting for an elevator. Like, hmm. hey, welcome to the area. You know, the, <laughs> what does it mean? <laughs> it means welcome to the area, right? It's a way to greet somebody you don't know. Mm-hmm. And you're both there for the common purpose of waiting, waiting for an elevator. And we don't embrace typically. We're not going to shake hands necessarily. But there's like a lift the eyebrows, acknowledging that we are present in this moment together. When I first went to France, I remember, you know, as a, as a kind of late in my adolescence, I was struck by the ritual when you greet someone of kissing each other's cheek once, a second time, a third time, back to the original cheek. Oh, yeah. Uh, they call it gros bisous, big fat kisses. Mm. Um, and you're really just cheek to cheek, not lips, but uh, it's a really a more intimate one than our handshaking. Right. Um, just like, well, someone told me once that handshaking w- originated perhaps to show someone that you don't have a gun. I like, heard that it's too. rude to have your hands under under the table. Whereas, like, contrast that to namaste hands on your heart, bowing in respect to the other, saying the divine in me sees and honors the divine in you um seems a little more enlightened than i don't have a gun (laughs) well it's very american is it not (laughs) that our salutation is to reveal that we're unarmed yeah cowboys yeah (laughs) so we have these sort of um traditional rituals that's another aspect in fact what i'm drawing from here folks is um catherine bell a professor of ritual studies she identified what she calls the six attributes of ritual Mm mm-hmm I'll go through them real quick because I think we're just going to sort of touch on them as we discuss yeah. what we think about ritual and ceremony. But So one is formalism, right? A ritual is, is formalized. There's like rules. Um, you can think of, uh, you know, um, the, what would it be? The, uh, the way we behave in a courtroom is formalized in some ways. The way 
Um, even we behave at a sporting event, right? At, at a football game, you go out and you toss the coin and then the, mm-hmm. the receiving team goes to one side, etc. The whistle or the chime beginning or ending a meditation practice. Right, right. So formalism, traditionalism, so it's passed down from generation to generation and it connects us to those who came mm-hmm. before us, reminds us of lessons learned. Um, traditions are a great way to pass down lessons to uh, subsequent generations. Disciplined invariance. So think of soldiers marching in drill. Disciplined invariance. Meaning okay. you don't vary yeah. Yeah, from the rules. And in fact, uh, in Eastern traditions, especially like Hinduism, Buddhism, there's this term sadhana that means disciplined spiritual practice or disciplined practice to move you towards awakening or towards a goal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Again, we can expand on any of these, but... Uh, Rule governance, this is the idea that rules can both check and channel certain tensions. So, you know, we, uh, back to the football example, you know, football is sort of this formalized rule governed display of violence. You know, it, it's rule governed in the sense that we, they, football players aren't encouraged to kill one another, but you can collide with and injure one another. And, and maybe mm-hmm. a, it's like a ritualized war. So With some ground rules so you don't right. die unfairly. <laughs> right. And and those rules change. Like I remember I played high school football. We used to tackle with our faces and heads. Mm-hmm. And now if you do that, it's called spearing and it's a penalty. You're not allowed to lead with your head. You have to lead with your shoulder. Yeah. So there's these rules that prevent it from being actual warfare, but it's a, uh, a simulation of, of warfare. Mm-hmm. So sometimes rituals can can be a way to channel certain energies or certain natural tendencies, yeah. like the one toward violence and tribalism, um, in-group versus out-group, in a way that's more acceptable and safer. Or like a drum circle, and it points out the need for some time in these rituals. Like you might be drumming, drumming, drumming. It might take minutes or dozens of minutes before you transcend out of the thinking mind into that oneness, like mm-hmm. into that rhythm, for example. Um, you know, Sundance ceremonies, have you heard of those? Mm-hmm. Where mm-hmm. you kind of basically get tied to a pole or a tree, you run around in the heat over and over and over and over again as like a ritual, and offering. But those, I've talked to people who have participated and they get to a transcendent place. Which I think is another important aspect of ritual is that we're, this is one of the purposes is to transcend the average, to transcend the normal, the like mundane. I said before, the profane, the mundane, the banal, mm-hmm. um, so that we can bring back lessons. And it might be uncomfortable. You almost like intentionally go into a ritual that might have some discomfort to mm-hmm. practice equanimity, to quiet the mind and connect with something bigger than yourselves. It could be the present moment. It could be the here and now. It could be God. That's what a rite of passage is, right? A rite of passage is a kind of ritual where there's a separation, there's an ordeal or some kind of transformation. This follows very much sort of the hero's journey archetype, right? And then there's a return. With gifts. With gifts. You bring your gifts and your insights back. But the ordeal is, is, uh, is a really crucial part of it. You need the ordeal to break you down so that you can transcend and then mm-hmm. bring back gifts. Like pulling the sword out of the stone. Right. Yeah. I just, I watched this uh, movie called The Northman mm-hmm. uh, a few weeks ago. And in that movie, it's a super intense movie. Holy cow. But mm-hmm. uh, 
in that movie, they have an example of this rite of passage where this, you know, Viking king is, his son has come of age and he goes down into the cellar of this hut where they meet with the medicine man, the shaman type, and they drink a psychedelic brew and they're on the ground like in loincloths growling at each other. And then uh, the the boy has to go off by himself. He has to separate from his father mm-hmm. uh, and go through this psychedelic ordeal on his own to see yeah. that he can do it. And then he comes back and he's reunited anew. And now he's a man, right? I love yeah. rites of passage. I think we need more of them. Like a walkabout, a coming of age, mm-hmm. a vision quest. Right. And it does have similarities to the psychedelic experience in that you're going into this journey, this experience, intentionally, and it might be a little uncomfortable. It mm-hmm. might be crazy. But um, you know you're coming back and you're going to kind of celebrate what you just went through, like that sweat lodge you just sat in while reciting prayers and like feeling like you're going to sweat to death or something and then come out reborn, renewed. Yeah. I don't think it's an accident that cultures for thousands of years have been using psychedelics as part of their rituals of transformation. Yeah. Their rites of passage because they do a great job of providing that ordeal that you're talking about, like this arc yeah. of the experience. Like the Dwiti tribes in, uh, say, Gabon, uh, using Iboga ceremonially as somewhat of a rite of passage. Mm-hmm. You know, very much like that with a lot of ceremonial attire, music, drumming, um, and ritual. It's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Another thing about ritual is that it tends to bind communities together, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you can do rituals yeah. by yourself. But uh, this shared dedication to deference to um, meaning in a rite or a ritual or a ceremony brings people together. This is, especially if it's traditional, right? Something that's passed down. If if you think about um, a fearful state where COVID's running rampant and we're we're all like, holy shit, what's happening? Um, And we're all like these chaotic atoms bouncing around bumping into each other, if you were to organize everyone into a circle, (laughs) hold hands, and do anything ceremonial, you've taken some, you've made some order in the chaos, you've done something in the discomfort to put that at ease for a moment, and then things are just more peaceful as you go onward from that. Order out of the chaos. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's another reason why ritual has been so important to us because life gets chaotic and it's a way of returning to order and making things right. It helps you remember to give up the need to understand and control everything. Mm. Like, hence that term I used earlier, the great mystery, like just accepting the fact, accepting our order as a speck in this cosmos uh, is part of the beauty of ritual for me. Yeah. Yeah, there's something incredibly freeing when you can, instead of resisting the reality of the great mystery, completely embrace accept it, it yeah. embrace it, right? Celebrate it. But peace, Howl at it. Yeah. Peace is on the other end of that acceptance. And we, in our sort of post-industrial uh, and post-enlightenment age, we have tried, I think, to rely so much on rationalism, mm-hmm. on being able to prove the, the, the inner, inner clockwork of all things. Yeah. So, and we rely on this really fancy cerebral cortex of ours. And it's it's given us many, many beautiful things, technologies and advances in science and things like that. But 
I think it also has has uh, convinced us that we we can figure everything out. That the great mystery is just a complicated math problem to be solved that we will eventually solve, and that leads to I think resistance. At least to me, it leads to resistance to that acceptance you're talking about, which would lead to peace. Mm-hmm. If I can figure it out, I won't want to rest until I do. But if I know that I can't, and that's okay, that that is the way of things, there's peace. You can relax into life and let it unfold in spite of the chaos, the uncertainty that can be highly uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. This is that counterintuitive thing we are always trying to help our clients understand, at least for me, understand again and again personally, is mm-hmm. is the idea that letting go of control is actually the way to find peace, not getting more control. Yeah, yeah. And I know I we kind of hijacked your list. I'm not sure if we finished them oh, yeah, uh, at all. But I was digging that conversation. Um, but there is one component that this makes me think of is that might be on your list that I see in a lot of ceremonies and rituals is gratitude. Like it gives you a, a chance to look back. We're so caught up in looking forward towards our goals. And um, even the topic last time of intentions are forward looking, but this these ceremonies can be a chance to pause, reflect on where we come from mm-hmm. and, uh, and really embody that as these, these souls, these beings, instead of just like humans with a to-do list. Yeah. I think that's what makes it sacred, which is something we started with, but is the fifth attribute on this list of six mm-hmm. is the, the sacred nature of ritual that it's set apart and deserving of reverence and, and like you said, gratitude for what it reminds us of yeah. and the peace that it brings us back to. And it's a practice so we can touch into the divine in these very specific ways, open up those pathways, those portals, so as you go about your daily life, you can kind of almost learn to do them on the fly. Yeah, Like you can pause and meditate, pray, do a little... Um, sacred thing mm-hmm. <laughs> to recenter yourself and then go about your day. You know, this is what my mom would tell me about the Mormon temple ceremony. Mm-hmm. You know, the, her opinion was that the temple, the LDS temple, this place that you could only get into if you were a card carrying, literal card carrying, like a temple recommend is a card. <laughs> yeah. Card carrying member of the LDS church where you engage in certain rites and rituals yeah. that have all, all these things, meet all, check all these boxes. And she would say that, you know, regardless of whether or not the things that you do in there are literal, literal, like things you need to know in order to get into heaven, she felt like was irrelevant. The important yeah. part was that it was a set apart place, a beautiful place where you gather together as a community with shared beliefs, engage in these rituals to do all the things we're talking about. Remind us of the sacred to, uh, to, put us in a quote, like really like a non-ordinary state of consciousness, like you were talking about where we are at peace for long enough, still for long enough that we can receive the messages we need to from whether it be God or higher self or the universe, the cosmos, Tom Cruise, like whatever, whatever you believe in. Right. Yeah. Like sometimes the ceremonies and rituals that I engage in are just to get me out of my head. Like it might be breath work might be yoga practice or a cold plunge. I mean, there are other purposes, but like speaking of yoga, I may have said this before, but the word vinyasa uh, that you hear in yoga, that people often think it means flow. Like I'm going to a vinyasa class. That means we're going to flow hard. Mm. But it really means like 
the V part is um, like, well, vinyasa means to set apart in a special way. Like it's a sequence strung together for a purpose of helping you get out of your head and your body, where which is your vehicle for enlightenment. Um, and so, you know, when you put things together in a special way, like building a staircase, you need to put them in the right order to make the grand staircase or um, assemble notes in the right sequence for your symphony to come to life. It's that kind of way with some of our practices. Like first you breathe, then you plunge, and then you high five or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The last item on her list is performance. And this is the one that... Mm. Um, I'm kind of grappling with, but her point, she says it could be a performance just for an audience of one. And that is you, it could be a performance for God, or it could be a performance for a congregation, but there's something yeah. performative about it. Like to use the yoga example, asana, um, this pose is, you know, if you look at this, the ceremonial significance, it's an offering, it's a prayer. Mm -hmm. You put yourself into this weird shape to give an offering to your supreme self, the divine, whatever it is, um, like, and there are names that have meanings. Like Hanumanasana is the splits, but it's named after Hanuman, the monkey god, who had this courage to leap across this great body of water and save, you know, his beloved friends um, with power he didn't even know he had. And it, and you come back to the yoga pose, you're literally opening your psoas muscle in this thing that is a seat of the soul and where you get these abilities to like dance through life and fly and float and have courage. So you can go infinitely deep on these things, even down to like one posture or one mudra with your hands. That's amazing. It's amazing how, like the, how the deep and uh, detailed rituals become oh, yeah. over time, especially I imagine as they're passed down from generation to generation and things are added and modified. I think that's part of, well, that's there on purpose. And part of the magic is, you know, we're given these things with a, a teacher just saying, just do it. Don't try and understand it because there's infinite understanding that will unfold later. It's like your psychedelic experience in a way you go you do it, you have this crazy experience, and then take lots of time to let the insights um, start to unfold, make sense, distill, weave them into your life. Yeah, yeah you've used that word unfold a couple of times, and I love it. Because to me, it's like, I, I want to excavate, you know, I want to dig yeah. it up and reveal Dynamite. it. Um, but that's not usually, and I'm learning this myself, is the path to insight is often, like we were saying before about control, it's a it's one that you navigate with surrender mm -hmm. instead of with this sort of masculine energy of charging forward, hunting the animal, killing it, bringing it back. Yeah. It's more of an, an opening up to um, and surrendering to what is so that change yeah. and insight can, as you say, unfold. Yeah, you can't take control of a drum circle. You're going to mess it up. I mean, sure, someone has to set the rhythm and like bring about that formal container. But but then you plug into the rhythm together and and then the magic happens. And you were saying that the, what did you say, transcendence is in the body or uh, awakening? Yeah, the body is your vehicle for enlightenment vehicle or how you access the here and now and connect with anything, your feelings, your 
I feel like we know this as children. There's so many things we know as children intuitively that we forget as we age mm-hmm. and sort of calcify. And, oh, yeah. <laughs> and I, I shot up into my brain and did a lot of schooling and was, you know, using my mind to what I thought was find the good life. And I'm, I'm learning now to get back into my body and mm-hmm. how being in my body can be an, a non-ordinary state. I don't even necessarily need a psychedelic to get these experiences. Yeah. Drum circles, you, dude, the first drum circle I was ever a part of was the trippiest thing I've ever, I've ever experienced. Yeah. Yep. Just, you know, you know, swaying to the beat and stuff like that. I, I became a different person for a moment. And then mm-hmm. I've done a little bit of ecstatic dance. Um, I've done a uh, cold plunge. I've done some breathing, like getting back into my body has been like coming home, yeah. like finding like new stuff on the walls. I it's love that. Amazing. Returning home to yourself, uh, is what embodiment is, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, because we do all too often live at this great distance from our body and and we're not really present. Dis, and disembodied life is not um, not a real full life. Uh, you're either off in the past somewhere, off in some like other land, mm-hmm. um, some other state, um, uh, tripping about the future. But uh, but yeah, there's something magical about coming into the body. Look at like the Sufis as an example, where they spin around whirl and whirl and whirl um, as a practice, a ritual to access a non-ordinary state. This has me a bit worried about our trend toward the metaverse and like a Hmm. future where we jack into the matrix. And we're not that far off. My my kids have a, a VR headset and yeah, you know, it's awesome. It's fun. It can provide really cool experiences but they're generally not in their bodies. Like we thought sitting close to the TV screen playing Nintendo was bad. This screen is a half an inch from your eyeballs and my son wants to get a haptic vest. That'd, <laughs> so, that'd be in the body, wouldn't it? It would be <laughs> on the body. Yeah, that's for <laughs> sure. But, yeah, you know, I think uh, we as a culture, my guess would be, I'm not an expert on this or an authority on this, but my observation is that we are moving away from embodiment. Oh, yeah. Not necessarily toward embodiment. And you find there's a craving for it. Right. There's a craving this whole psychedelic renaissance is probably motivated in part by that craving of wanting to mm-hmm. come back to sacredness, to wholeness, to home, to embodiment. Yeah. Um, especially after COVID there's, uh, I mean, not that COVID's gone. My sister has it right now. It's, it, but mm-hmm. the pandemic, at least uh, its restrictions seems to be lightening up in most places in yeah. the world. People are coming back to community and wanting to touch each other, wanting to be around each other and to be in our bodies. Yeah. Yeah there is something special about that and it is at the heart of many many rituals and practices i mean it's how we experience life you know the mind the body are inseparable mutually connected interdependent and uh you know there aren't many rituals you can do without the body yeah and therefore the mind you know we might need to get out of some of the overthinking or transcend some of the discomforts of the body to access those deeper states, but uh, but it's a it's our portal. That's that ordeal part, right, of the rite of passage yeah. or the hero's journey, passing through the belly of the beast, belly of the whale. Um, that's mm-hmm. what that's what the cold has been for me lately. Is cold yeah. plunging is is a deliberate ordeal, on the other end of which I find so much bliss. That was neat how we did that this past weekend mm-hmm. um, with. Uh, a facilitator who was really cool about it because he had us link arms and there was no turning back. Like even people who weren't planning to go into that cold lake <laughs> were right there with us mm-hmm. the whole time. No one 
No one got out early because we were just in it together. Yeah. And I, I probably wouldn't have been in there as long as I was if it weren't for the community, right? Yeah. And I feel it's crazy how close I felt to those people, some of which I didn't even know their names. Yep. <laughs> we're linking arms in this cold lake up to our throats and uh, I started laughing, you know? It was, once I got beyond mm -hmm. the, oh, oh crap. <laughs> yeah. I was I was in bliss. And he, he did a cool thing. He taught us to inhale as if we were blowing on, uh, like I think you even said embers or something mm -hmm. like that. Fanning a flame like a bellows just, or you could feel the warmth as your skin was cold. It reminded me of that uh, sit around the fire Ram Dass um, track on Spotify. I think it's, I don't know if it's East Forest or John Hopkins, uh, pardon me to both of those um, <laughs> wonderful artists. Yeah. artists. But, but it talks about just looking for that one ember and then you fan it and you can relight your fire. Yeah. So as a follow-up to that exercise, the other day uh, I went out in my backyard as the sun was coming up and I did three rounds of breath work. I combined mm -hmm. alkaline breathing with breath of fire and then I did Wim Hof. And then I just I took my shirt off and I just let the sun sort of cook me as it was coming up. And I didn't need caffeine that morning. I was so charged. Yeah. I was so on. Went to the gym, worked out, had probably one of the best days of my life. It was so good. I felt so good. You know what uh, they call breath of fire? Another name for it in the yoga circles is a yogic cup of joe. Oh, really? So it is very literally a uh, way of tapping into energy within oneself. I'm yeah. pretty new to it, and I was following this track on YouTube, and it had you alternate between, uh, well, speeds. So it was one rhythm that was about, yeah. and then twice as fast. It's like I don't, my diaphragm's not that coordinated. <laughs> Going yeah, that practice, fast. practice. Yeah. Oh, we, I should make an announcement. Last episode, we said you hadn't gone to a yoga class yet, ah. and we need to get you there. And we would, and we did. We certainly did. And I feel like it was a good first yoga class because we did a kundalini class. Is that what it's called? Yeah, I wouldn't have predicted we'd do a kundalini class as your first one because that yeah. can be weird yoga. I mm -hmm. love it, but uh, it's trippy yoga. I'm down for the trippy stuff now. Yeah. Um, but it was beautiful. It, it, was, uh, mo it was mostly a sound bath, but we did some breath work, some meditation, mm -hmm. um, and then it was just amazing sound. It's a good example of uh, ceremonies and rituals, rituals especially, or a sacred practice, because Kundalini is based on this idea that there's this dormant like serpent at the base of your spine that you need to awaken. That's your life force, your energy. And the practices that they call Kriyas are these repetitive things with breath and movement and mantras and discipline and all these ingredients you're talking about in order to awaken this dormant serpent and bring it up the spine further and further until it blasts out the crown of your head um, to the heavens. See, and if I would have heard you say that, but <laughs> and I've heard you say things like that, or I've known you long enough. <laughs> <But> <laughs> I would have heard you say that before this class, I'd been like, okay, Come on. that's weird. Yeah. But after having gone to this class, when she had us, just in practical terms, flex your pelvic floor, sit up straight, breathe, and then bring your gaze, she said, to your third eye, but then she's just like, basically look right behind your forehead. Yeah. And I could do that with my eyes closed. And, I'll, and I did, I felt it just this channel, this energy yeah. go whoop right out the top of my head. And when we're just like twisting our torsos with breath in order to awaken the subtle creativities and saying a mantra that most of us can't really even accurately repeat yeah, I couldn't. or don't, don't know how to translate. Couldn't remember it. <laughs> um, 
there's something happening inside. Like we're moving energy for sure. Mm -hmm. And what happens when you move energy or you get stagnant things moving, you, you get the juices flowing, AKA creativity. Yeah. The whole ener movement of energy thing and, and embodiment reminds me again of childhood. When I was a kid, I loved karate. I was just in kind of your generic yeah. suburban karate class. And uh, I loved it and I was good at it. Like I really enjoyed the motions, the, the mm -hmm. I forgot what they called katas or something like that. Uh, I don't remember what they were called, but these, these forms, these rituals mm -hmm. basically that you'd go through, these dances yeah. basically. Um, and you know, as I'm, as our podcast listeners are watching me evolve, <laughs> Reed <laughs> invites me to do these really interesting things. Um, I came out of that class definitely wanting to do more yoga, but I, I, I think I would like Qigong or Tai Chi, oh, yeah. you know, movement, fluid movement, holding yeah. poses makes sense, but I, I like to move. Yeah. I love both those practices, Qigong and, and Tai Chi, cause it really does feel like you're moving these balls of energy and uh awakening something inside yeah yeah so um ritualizing these things could mean that you make a habit out of them so yeah. you set them aside as important or we could say sacred mm -hmm. you know for me the gym is a ritual yeah it's and and i have certain exercises that i do in certain ways that um i barely have to think about my body just does them and if I don't yeah. do my gym ritual, apart from just the exercise makes us feel good and is good for our physical health, um, I feel off. I feel like I haven't worshipped the barbell gods. <laughs> yeah, I need to pay my dues and sacrifice some sweat. No, it's nice to look at the things we do anyway regularly as rituals, to ritualize them. And I know ritual could be a charged word for some, or they might they might push a button of, cultish stuff right but if we're really looking at it as making something special like being fully present for it like making time and space for it in your life because you find it important and find benefit then yeah it's a ritual or it's a ceremony and that's a beautiful thing it when i look at other cultures and i see where they have rituals for things like grief mm. mourning that we don't i start to worry even more about our collective mental health when we're not making space for emotions like for example there there's this culture in new guinea papua new guinea where there's a term for if you you have a loved one like a parent or a sibling even go somewhere far away for an extended period of time what's it called a wound book is the feeling of like grief when someone you love is far away mm. and so that activates a ritual in the community of, okay, you get three days to not have to work on the land or anything. You can just sleep in, lay there. And then at the end of that, there's this, you set out this coconut, um, half of a coconut with coconut water in it. And the idea is that it's going to absorb these emotions. And then, uh, you know, at the end of that, you take it and throw the water out in the garden and it's like a purging of your emotions yeah. like a celebratory okay i've felt it to its completion instead of what we are at risk of doing in our culture of just like squashing the tears burying them somewhere numb and avoid yeah numb and avoid and we uh just because of the way our society has progressed with uh, the infinite amount of dopamine producing activities that we can use to numb and avoid yeah um it's been hard, I think, hard for us to find our way back to healthier rituals like mm -hmm. that. 
Yeah, because you have this three-day period, you know you're going to feel crappy, and that's okay. You're supported. It's okay, yeah. It's, and at the, okay. there's something on the other side of that. There's a release. There's a, a liberation. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking of the, the rituals we used to go through when I was a Mormon missionary, uh, mm-hmm. and the ones that aren't like formal to the church, but the ones that we that are sort of formal to missionary culture. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of them were to time mark the mission. When I went, the men served for two years. And yeah. so at six month intervals, you would do things like, for us, it was like at six months, you burn a tie. Oh yeah. And then yeah. at one year you burn a shirt. I have scars on my hands from when I burned my shirt. <laughs> oh, You don't burn it on your body, but you, <laughs> I, I put it in a sink to put it out and it wasn't putting put out. So I you know, being the genius that I was, stuffed my hand into the shirt, into the sink. Doing it wrong. I was doing it wrong, yeah. Didn't follow the rules and rights of this particular ritual. Um, And when, you know, when a companion, or your missionary companion, your partner, received what we call the Dear John letter, which happened to a lot of us young men, where Mm -hmm. a girlfriend would say, I'm dating somebody else because you've been gone for 10 minutes. Um, We would then burn all the memorabilia. So if he'd brought along pictures or old letters or whatever, offering it up to fire. Yeah, there's something special about that. I've even done that with my kids at the end of a semester in their high school or middle school where they wanted to burn their homework. So let's let's make a ceremony out of that. That's kind of fun. Yeah. Um, or I used to do this at a yoga studio. Um, often on New Year's Eve or New Year's Day, a burning bowl ceremony that I just love doing because we go in and we like write down all the things we're grateful for, reflect on the year. But then we write down all the things we want to let go of on these little pieces of paper and burn them in this fire in the middle of a circle. And there's something about writing and really burning that helps bring into real life. Like a ceremony is like a bridge from the unseen to the real world. So you could burn it and really let it go. Kind of like cord cutting ceremonies that people do. And then you've made space for your intentions. You go for it. You like write those down, put them in a special place and take inspired action, follow your bliss. Yeah, I love that. Like you said, the ritual can be a triggering word and not all rituals have to involve combustion or, (laughs) you know, group sex in the woods with kabuki masks. It can be Mm -hmm. sharing what you're grateful for at dinner. With your family. Yeah. It can be family prayer. It's a beautiful one. That's one I've tried to implement with my family is uh, just going around the table at family dinner and saying, you know, one thing that you're thankful for and one thing that challenged you today. And then we listen and offer support. You know what's important, um, I think, to point out is that it might feel cheesy to some people to do this. I know I had that while entering the world of ritual ceremony Um, Even as a kid or a self-conscious teenager of like, oh, I don't want to do this, share something you're thankful for, or might be embarrassed to share your New Year's resolutions, whatever it is. But um, there's something beautiful when you set that aside. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, look at our our friend, mentor, teacher, Phil Wolfson, when he came out to Utah to speak at that psychedelic conference we did a couple years ago. You know, he, he said, by the way, I'm a bell gongs and chimes guy <laughs> and and we were like awesome so are we yeah um but meaning he he would open and close his ketamine assisted psychotherapy sessions with ceremony and ritual and i think it's beautiful out of context ceremony and ritual looks weird and uh, people often make fun of it it seems yeah. cheesy it seems bizarre sometimes scary um but i think uh 
you know, on my Instagram page the other day, I posted something and somebody made this beautiful comment that was seemed sincere and heartfelt. And the first reply to that comment was, this is super cringy. Oh, that what they said? Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, at least, especially to Gen Zers, like the worst thing you can be in this world is cringe. Don't be cringy. But what is something that's cringy? Like it's something that uh, seems... Triggers. Just triggering, right? Friends to follow. And I think, you know... The sacred, at least for me, I'll speak for myself, should be something that within context we treat with all this holiness and reverence that we described, mm-hmm. but that in the safe in-group of people who do this particular practice, you can make fun of it. Like you can play around with it. For me, yeah. that allows me to go back into it and hold it with reverence. If outside of it, I can play around with it. Yeah. You need that safe container, that safe group to practice with. You can't do a really, you can't surrender to a special sacred ritual if you're not feeling safe and you have to build up all these walls because people are just pointing at you and laughing at you and mocking um, in a really negative way. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I make the, I made the distinction of the in-group. Like yeah. people who are outside of the group who's maybe practicing this particular ritual who make fun of it, it feels like an assault, right? Because these people aren't safe. They're not in the know. But those of us on the inside, we can make fun of it. And it's humor like, is so cathartic and helpful then. Yeah. yeah. It reminds me of my work with veterans. You know, the, mm-hmm. the veterans have some of the most gallows of gallows humor you'll hear. Uh, and they're, they're no more, com- they're never more comfortable doing that than with their battle buddies, right. Than with fellow veterans. Yeah. But if somebody else comes in and, you know, makes fun of somebody being blown up by a vehicle born IED, they're not going to have it. Right. You can't, yeah. if you don't, if you aren't part of that group, you can't come in and make fun of that stuff, but they can. Right. Yeah. I mean, I remember when I f- did a urology rotation in med school, mm. <laughs> um, all the prostate jokes for, it took me a second to all, all the, uh, like reproductive system and urinary tract system jokes that were cracked in the team meetings. But then I realized this was a hilarious moment they shared while, um, connecting and refueling, recharging for their day. Kind of like at some restaurants you hear the whole team will sit down and share a meal together before the chaos comes in and they go and, and just cook up a storm and serve the tables and dish out epic experiences. You could say that the cracking of the jokes in the urology staff room is a ritual. Yeah. Right. This is something that they do that only they can do that is important to help them, you know, decompress from how hard it must be to be a physician or, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's, there's a lot of joking around about how men in groups tend to rip on each other. Like that you we yeah. will identify your weakness and we will make fun of it for decades. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yep. And it's well taken typically and then well dished out. No one's safe. And because no one is safe from ridicule, everyone's safe. Yeah. And I remember rotating through a psychiatric hospital where one of the attending physicians, a psychiatrist, was so fun to work with because he would just pull a song out of the archives of his memory banks and sing it um, that had something to do with the last patient we saw or talked about and uh it was in it was in really a good spirit and not in front of them it was just like um it really uh took the it lightened the load of Mm -hmm. the day Mm -hmm. yeah yeah that's one thing i think these rituals both acknowledged and unacknowledged formalized maybe a little less formalized Mm -hmm. can do is help you lighten the load of what is often a very heavy life yeah um anything else about 
making life sacred through ceremony and ritual? Well, I've got a Joseph Campbell quote that I absolutely love. Um, and there are several. Uh, I guess one of them, just to summarize, Joseph Campbell, who writes about the power of myth, the hero's journey, and things like that, he said, you just need three things in life. One, a sacred space. Uh, two, sacred time. And then three, something joyful to engage in. And with that, you can get through anything. Yeah. Um, and then to read one of his quotes, he said, your sacred space is where you can find yourself again and again. You don't really have a sacred space, a rescue land, until you find somewhere to be that's not a wasteland, some field of action where there was a spring of ambrosia, a joy that comes from inside, not something external that puts you, that puts joy into you. You need a place that lets you experience your own will, your own intention, and your wish so that in small, the kingdom is there. I think everybody, whether they know it or not, is in need of such a place. Mm. So find your sacred place. Make the sacred time. Follow your bliss. Connect with something joyful. And uh, that's how you transcend the mundane and remember to make all of life a ceremony and bring the sacred magic into day-to-day life. Well said. Yeah. Thanks, Reed. Thanks, Steve. Thank you, dear listener, for listening. It means a lot to me. Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers is brought to you by Novamind, a mental health company that specializes in psychedelic medicine and research. You can learn more about Novamind's mission to increase access to legal, safe, and evidence-based psychedelic medicine at novamind.ca. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're using to listen or watch. Also, if you're feeling generous today, please leave us a glowing review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. If you'd like to reach out to us with questions, suggestions, scathing criticisms, etc., please email us at psychfrontiers at novamind.ca. Thanks again. Hey listeners, it's Steve Thayer here, letting you know that Numinous offers unique training opportunities for mental health practitioners to develop their skills and expertise in offering psychedelic-assisted therapy to clients. These courses are carefully crafted by Numinous professionals like myself, Reed, Joe, and others, and offer a variety of high-quality learning experiences. So, if you would like to learn more about these trainings, you can find the link in the show notes below, or you can visit numinous.com forward slash training. That's numinous.com forward slash training. The content of this podcast does not constitute medical advice or mental health treatment. Consult with a medical or mental health professional if you believe you are in need of mental health treatment.